Daddy, do you think that you'll write another book? The words drifted down from my daughter's loft bed high above where I was lying on the floor next to the bed of my three-year-old son trying desperately to get him to go to sleep. I don't know, Anna, I replied honestly. Her response came quickly, cutting through the darkness. Well, I think you should. Do you, I said, and what do you think this book should be called? She replied, you should call it an earthquake of heaven. I lay silent for a moment, reflecting on the thought that my little girl might one day be an author, or at the very least a preacher. But before I could say anything, Anna chimed in once again. No, change that. You should call it an earthquake of love. Now, it's always risky to begin a sermon with a highly personal story. And in this case, the stakes are doubly high, for I've published a journal article in which I've quoted the theologian Stanley Hauerwas saying, as soon as a preacher begins a sermon with, I cannot believe what my seven-year-old daughter recently said, you can quit listening. The subject of the sermon, no matter what else is said, will not direct attention to the witness of the scriptures to God. In my defense, my daughter is only six years old, and she does seem to have uncanny theological instincts. Besides, there was no way I was going to pass up the opportunity of sharing this story about my daughter, Anastasia, whose name means resurrection, and her talk of an earthquake of heaven and an earthquake of love in a sermon during the season of Easter. For Easter is an earthquake. Matthew in his gospel even depicts the events of that first Easter morning as being accompanied by an earthquake. Certainly, The resurrection was an earthquake for the violent zealot Saul who was shaken to the core of his very being when he was confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. That encounter created the seismic shift that would propel Saul, now Paul, to the ends of the empire, proclaiming that the very one he had once opposed as a messianic pretender was, in fact, the risen Lord of all. The tremors associated with the resurrection of the crucified Jesus quickly spread throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. Just a few verses before our reading from Acts, Paul and his companions, while in Thessalonica, were quite accurately charged with turning the world upside down. Having been driven out of Thessalonica, And then Berea, Paul, in our passage, arrives at the storied city of Athens. As the birthplace of democracy and the home of renowned philosophers, playwrights, and physicians, Athens had once stood as the crown jewel of the ancient Mediterranean world. But by the time Paul arrived, it had been relegated to the status of a provincial backwater living in the memories of a once glorious past. 
While he was waiting for his companions, Timothy and Silas, to catch up with them, Paul decides to take the opportunity to do a little sightseeing. As he tours the birthplace of Western civilization, Paul is not impressed by what he sees. In fact, he is deeply distressed, for he discovers that Athens is, in the words of one commentator, a veritable forest of idols. Luke describes Paul's visceral reaction to the flagrant idolatry of Athens by employing the Greek word from which we get our colorful English word paroxysm. A paroxysm is a fitting reaction for a good Jew like Paul in the face of idolatry, for this is exactly how the God of Israel is described as responding to idolatry in the Old Testament. Having crossed the Parthenon off of his bucket list, Paul gets down to work and does what he always does. He starts to preach. As was his habit, Paul begins in the synagogue, but he also preaches in the marketplace, entering into dialogue with all who will give him a hearing. He even catches the attention of some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But the Athenians are not able to understand what Paul is saying. Some think he is a mere babbler, an intellectual scavenger who has assembled a superficial collection of sayings from the ancient philosophies, but has no idea how they all hang together. In other words, these people think that Paul is a philosophical poser. Others think that Paul is trying to make additions to the pantheon of the gods, mistaking his message about Jesus and the resurrection as a message about a god named Jesus and his consort Anastasia. It is very difficult for Paul to get a hearing in a place like Athens. Each of the Athenians seemed to be attempting to fit Paul's message into their existing categories. They think that Paul is merely telling them something they don't know. Now, this is partially true. Paul is telling them something they don't know. But what they don't know is an earthquake of heaven which shakes to the foundations their very structures of knowing. The struggle to communicate that Paul is confronted with in Athens is a perennial problem for those who are called to preach. People can hear the words that the preacher proclaims but miss the message that the words are meant to communicate. Instead of hearing the announcement of news that turned the world upside down, our default setting is to attempt to fit Jesus into our existing worldviews and paradigms. The danger appears to be particularly heightened in places like Athens, where Luke tells us that people are always clamoring to hear something new and where the prevailing worldview has the capacity to domesticate and assimilate all alternatives into its overarching frame. In some ways, the decadence of Athens is not that much different from that of late modern Western civilization. The difference, though, is that Athens had a pantheon of gods, 
We modern-day Athenians have religion. The invention of the category of religion was the intellectual coup d'etat of the modern world that allowed it to claim the public obedience of Christians for a plethora of principalities and powers by convincing them that faith is essentially a private matter relegated to the realms of values and feelings. When the Christian faith is successfully domesticated as a religion, it simply becomes another consumer option at the modern supermarket of desire. As a result, we can end up saying things like, Jonathan likes to fly model airplanes, Jennifer does yoga, Andrew likes to drink craft beer, and Margaret likes to go to church as if being a follower of Jesus was simply one of a countless number of lifestyle preferences available at the buffet of self-fulfillment and self-expression. This domestication of the Christian faith under the category religion also explains such uniquely modern phenomenon as church shopping. In this time called modern, the great temptation before all Christians is to buy into the lie that we are a religious people. And then beyond that, to allow the world to define for us what exactly a religion is. Don't be fooled. We Christians do not have a religion. What we have is a Lord. This was the message that carried Paul across the empire, and it was the message he proclaimed in his famous sermon before the Areopagus. Paul was not in this sermon, as it is sometimes said, attempting to translate the gospel into philosophical terms on the basis of some shared religiosity. Rather, Paul was translating the experience of the Athenians into the story of the God of Israel through interpreting their history and experience in the light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Paul's speech is an unrelenting onslaught upon the idolatry of Athens. He cleverly makes reference to the altar of the unknown God to combat the charge that he is introducing new deities, while at the very same time he is going about dismantling the whole pantheon of the gods. In this deconstruction, Paul does draw upon some concepts and sayings that would have been familiar to the philosophers who were also critical of the Athenian predisposition towards fashioning idols. It's possible that hearing these familiar terms, the Epicureans and Stoics may have failed to notice the new interpretive frame in which Paul was placing them. They may have even been nodding their heads as Paul progressed through his speech, but their nodding quickly ceased as Paul's message reached its end with the earthquake of the resurrection. Now it became clear that Paul was not proclaiming an interesting idea or a private philosophy, but a public event that transpired in history. Not only that, but the event in question was a bodily resurrection, the very notion of which was pure foolishness to the Greeks. 
Interestingly, while Paul's hearers were put off by the resurrection, I suspect that it is Paul's talk of judgment that leaves us sitting uncomfortably. After all, there is perhaps no greater sin in our current cultural climate than to be labeled as judgmental. Although perhaps, somewhat ironically, it's hard to match the judgmentalism of those who stand in judgment over those perceived to be judgmental. Now, I generally don't go around looking for occasions to preach on the last judgment, but it's right there in our text, which was the lectionary reading for this past Sunday. So if I'm going to faithfully handle this passage of Scripture, I have to speak about the last judgment because the Apostle Paul speaks about it. Paul recognized that the earthquake of heaven, which is the resurrection, required the proclamation of the coming judgment. Furthermore, in a way that sits rather uneasily with our present-day sensibilities, Paul seemed to recognize that this judgment is part of the good news. The people of God throughout the centuries have taken great comfort in the doctrine of the last judgment. The fact that we struggle with it, and I include myself first and foremost within this we, may perhaps be an indication of our own cultural and spiritual decadence. In reading a passage like this, I like to fancy myself as Paul, heroically preaching to the pagans, although I'm not sure who that makes you in that scenario. But the fact that the judgment leaves me feeling uneasy suggests that perhaps I am the one who stands in need of conversion. The resurrection truly is an earthquake because it presents us with the assurance that God will judge the world. But it is an earthquake of love because he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. This earthquake brings to the surface dry land for those drowning in the seas of nihilism. The assurance of judgment tells us that there is an end to the story. And as in any story, it is the end that conveys meaning upon the whole. Life is not simply one damn thing after another, but rather history is headed somewhere it will arrive at its end and goal because God is going to set things right. He will judge the world in righteousness. The last judgment assures us that God will not contend with his ancient enemy, the devil, forever. One day death itself will die and sin will be no more. Now, this is not pie in the sky when we die by and by. That would be religion. This is an earthquake, an earthquake that turns the world upside down by releasing a resurrection people into the world who live in light of the end that has been revealed in the face of Christ, a people who are able to stare down death and all of its minions which seek to denigrate and destroy because they are assured of the triumph of the Lord of life. A people set free to extravagantly love and offer themselves in selfless service because they know that not a single act of mercy or kindness will be lost. 
Rather, everything that is beautiful, everything that is true, everything that is good will be preserved until the day of the Lord, when it will be transfigured by the radiance of the risen one. It's not easy to inhabit this resurrection reality. It requires the continual conversion of our imaginations. Now, there's a good biblical word for this conversion of our imaginations. That word is repentance. Sadly, the word repentance has, I think, largely fallen into disuse in the church. And when it is still used, it often takes the distorted form of a weapon being brandished by those looking to police the borders of a bourgeois morality. However, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, it seems unlikely that he was simply talking about giving up cigarettes, alcohol, and dancing. Many of you will know that this coming October 31st marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation began when a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. What not as many of you may know is that the very first of those 95 theses read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther understood that repentance simply is the form of the Christian life of discipleship. On the first night of the systematic theology class that I'm currently teaching during this spring semester, I, I said something that pointed or gestured in this direction. It seemed to capture the attention of the class and has become something of a mantra for some of the students in the course. I said to them, a few years from now, many of you will walk across the stage at graduation and receive a diploma that says Master of Divinity. While it will be an accomplishment worth celebrating and God willing, I will be there to cheer you on, don't kid yourself. If God is who we Christians say he is, you will never be a master of divinity. Truth is not our possession. Rather, we have been addressed by the one who is the truth, who calls us to follow him. It turns out that Paul's exhortation to the Areopagus is also addressed to us, the members of the Tyndale community or maybe even especially to us, the members of the Tyndale community. Hear the word of God. Repent, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repent, for Easter is an earthquake an earthquake of heaven, an earthquake of love.